Matthew Dunn. In this episode, I speak with Chris Taylor, head men's soccer coach at Plattsburgh State University. Born in Liverpool, England, Chris speaks about how Liverpool FC, one of the biggest soccer clubs in the world, shaped and was shaped by the culture of the Liverpool community. Coming to the U.S., Chris talks about the power of psychological safety and how feeling safer as a person and player allowed him to flourish in his new country. Finally, Chris talks about inheriting a successful program run by a legendary coach, Chris Waterbury, and the pressure that comes with finding his own authentic voice apart from that of his predecessor. I hope you enjoy the episode, and here is Chris Taylor. Chris, hello and welcome. Yeah, hello. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. For sure, and thank you uh, for the listener. Chris is in between some uh, sessions and recording in his car, so I really appreciate your willingness to, to make this work, so thanks again. Yeah, no problem at all. So Chris, for our listeners, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, so as you said, my name's Chris Taylor. I'm currently the men's soccer coach at Plattsburgh State University, upstate New York. Um, that's where I went to university, played four years there, was an assistant coach for a couple of years there and uh, went to a couple of other places, but I basically a year ago now came back to Plattsburgh as uh, as the head coach to take over from the coach that I played for. So it's uh, it's it's been great to come back to to where I played, but it's uh, it's definitely had its challenges as well. Was your first season last season? As head coach? Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited because you are at the very start of this building a culture process. And I'm really curious to see and hear what you're doing at Plattsburgh. Uh, but before we kind of dive into that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. Again, the listeners, if you haven't caught on already, uh, Chris is not from here. Uh, so uh, with that, I'll let you kind of fill us in where you're from and what it was like to be from uh, that area. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm Liverpool, England, born and bred. Um, you know, grew, lived there till I was 18, till I moved over to the States. And, uh, you know, I, I loved growing up in Liverpool and uh, I love going back there as much as I can. Um, grew up a massive Liverpool fan, had the chance to play in their academy for a little bit. Um, went on to some other clubs, Tramia Rovers, Wrexham. Accrington Stanley kind of hit all the different levels of the football pyramid in England um, with the dream of being a professional player. Went to Liverpool games home and away um, and I was lucky enough to go to Madrid last month to see the Champions League final and see Liverpool win. So uh, Liverpool Football Club and football and soccer as a whole has just been a massive, massive part of my life and my upbringing and, and how I see the world and how I've met everyone who's been through the sport. But, you know, I, I, like I said, I had the dream of being a professional footballer. Um, and I was always good enough to get in the door at clubs, but I was never good enough to stick around. And so I was always hanging on for dear life and, you know, moved around to a couple of clubs where they had opportunities. But, you know, at 18, um, I was lacking a, a lot of education and lacking a bit of direction, didn't know what to do and took a big jump to come over to the States and, I've lived here ever since, and uh, I've loved every minute of that too. So I've, I'm lucky to have the best of both worlds of Liverpool and, and the U.S. and what both cultures offer. Wow, there's so much in there to unpack. 
before we dive in deeper, I'm going to take a personal aside and just ask, tell me about Jurgen Klopp and your impressions of uh, the modern Liverpool FC. Oh, it's amazing, you know. I mean, I've I've seen it all with Liverpool, really, except for the glory years. I was born just as the glory years were coming to the end, and so I've had to endure a little bit with some of the managers we've had. And Klopp is a breath of fresh air. He's he's amazing, and I, I actually had the chance to meet him last month um, after the Champions League final. And I was I don't usually get starstruck or anything, but I was in awe of the man and his personality and his aura. And you can see just by meeting him why the players play the way they do for him. He's just got this energy about him that, uh, you know, you, you just get excited around him. And and so the thing is, you know, as a soccer fan, as a sports fan in general, we all have opinions on the game and that this team should be doing this, this manager should be doing that. But this for the first time in my life, I don't have an opinion on Liverpool, whatever Klopp thinks, I agree with because he's, he's amazing, you know. We, yes. I've never seen anybody... Um, Embrace a city, embrace a culture, embrace a, a a way of life in Liverpool that he has, especially as an outsider. He just gets the city, he gets the people, and and um, he he can do no wrong, in my opinion, to be honest. Yeah, and and for those who don't know uh, what we're talking about, Jurgen Klopp, he is the head coach of Liverpool FC, and I'll say, you know, from really from about 1999. Um, Pep Guardiola and the Barcelona team has been my guiding light. So that's where I fell in love with, with really the tactical side. And so now Pep Guardiola, again, plays in the uh, champion, or not the champions, the English uh, Premier League with Liverpool FC. Um, and what a fascinating tactical duel those games were this year. Yeah, I mean, you've essentially got two of the best managers in the world, if not the best managers in the world, you know. A um, little bit of contrasting styles, but yep. um, in one being a really high energy, maybe controlled chaos with Klopp and Guardiola being the ultimate control freak and dominant, you know, uh, having the ball at, at all costs for all times. And, you know, it, it, the Premier League right now is is the best league to watch because of the managers that are in there. With Agreed. Your Klopp's, your, your Guardiola's, when Mourinho was in there, when Conte was in there. You know, you've got Emery now at Arsenal. You've got Pochettino. I mean, the 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 competition. You've got some of the greatest minds in the world right now, and all doing it in their own way. And uh, you know, England wasn't always known for its sophisticated of managers. It used to right. be very uh, what what I'd call an agricultural game. Um, <laughs> yeah. Very, uh, very much hit and hope and let's get in amongst it whereas now you know every game is is, is a free coaching course you know it's free coach yeah. education to sit down and watch it's it's brilliant yeah that's well said and, and very quickly we could turn this podcast into a soccer podcast so I'll, I'll reel us back a bit and uh and just ask let's focus on you know as a kid growing up in liverpool what was it like what were your parents like what was the community like um, you know, I think now with hindsight, looking back, it's a lot different than what I felt it was at the time. At the time, uh, you know, it, it was a tough environment. Liverpool's a very working class city. Um, you know, in the 70s and 80s, high unemployment, high crime rates. Um, but it's a city that's resilient and it's a tough, tough city that believes in its own people. And so I was brought up to believe that I'm from Liverpool. I can kind of survive anything. And no matter what anyone does, we're, we're um, a tough nut to crack. But with that comes a lot of challenges, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I was definitely what you call a street kid in a positive sense, where I was out every day playing soccer on the streets. I was out with my mates riding bikes. I didn't spend a lot of time inside. Um, it was a different time where, yeah, 
you were you you were you were safe to go out until you know it was dinner time or you called home whatever and I spent a lot of time outside with my mates exploring growing up and and with that comes different pressures you know looking back now um I I was different uh in Liverpool than than I am in the US coming to the US almost allowed me to reinvent myself personally I wasn't a very confident kid um because again it was it was a tough, tough place, and if you if you showed a little bit of weakness, you were you were called out on it. Um, and I was always a talented soccer player, but I wasn't a mentally tough player by any means. And that was one of my biggest weaknesses: is I questioned myself, I questioned, you know, am I good enough? Am I tough enough? Because again, as I said, maybe back then the game was a lot more physical, a lot more, you know, can you win your tackles? Can you win your headers? And to be honest, I. I didn't fit into the era. I was a very technical player. Um, I appreciated a good touch, a passing range, uh, a thought process. And, you know, I wasn't someone who went steaming into tackles. And, you know, then you start to think, oh, am I I just a weak player? Am I I never going to make it because I'm not tough enough? And then, you know, again, coming from a football in City, the school I went to produced a lot of players in terms of Trent Alexander-Arnold, Stephen Gerrard went to my school, uh, David Nugent, who's played for England. Lots of players have gone to my school and came out. So it was a very footballing environment. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, although I was at times lacking confidence, nothing deterred me from the love of the sport. Um, I've always just been around the ball. I can go out for hours on my own still at my age and play with the ball. Um, and then my parents, you know, my mum wasn't too involved football-wise, you know, she knows she knows the game, but she wasn't involved. My dad took a, a leading, um, I guess, a leading role in that. He played a bit. He was a police officer, detective, but he coached on the side as well. That's what he did with all spare time. So he's a, a, a major passion. That's where I get my passion for the game from is him. Um, and he always wanted me, you know, to push me on, see where I could play. He he knew I was talented, but um, you know, he always pushed me to, you know, go play for this team, go play for that team. But you know, again, as with hindsight, looking back, I wish I'd have been um, a bit more thicker skinned and a bit more. This is who I am. This is not. Instead of trying to be what coaches or teachers or, or social circles wanted me to be, and then I came out to the US, and, and basically that's the decision I made: is I'm going to be who I want to be and I reinvented myself and my confidence grew and that's why I've gone into coaching and, and been you know had had an enjoyable career as a coach because my confidence has gone through the roof in the last 15 years yeah yeah that's fascinating and, and what's really intriguing about this is you know unlike here in the states when when I ask you about culture the culture of your community and the culture of football are really one and the same I mean they're so intertwined um, and so I have a, a framework that I use to understand culture that we're going to uh, use later on when we, when we focus at Plattsburgh. But um, I'll ask you some questions. Uh, and the first question is, if you think about your community, and, and you can think about this any way you want, whether it's the greater Liverpool community or your family, if there is a symbol, any graphical representation uh, of your community, of that culture, what would it be? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I think... You know, just from a visual thing, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, the street that we would always play on mm-hmm. as kids. You know, I just think of a street, cars parked on the curb, um, you know, using hoodies, shoes, rocks, whatever it is to make a couple of goals. 
Um, and I just, uh, every time I think back to Liverpool and growing up, I think of this one street that we used to play 2v2, 3v3, 5v5, uh, World Cup knockouts, whatever, heads and volleys, whatever you want to call different games, we played it and we'd have to stop every time a, 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 a car came down. But that was the meeting place. You could just go there without asking anyone. You'd find someone there who wanted to play. Um, and you, didn't, you weren't always best mates with them. You weren't always the same age as them. But you went there, they've got a ball, you've got a, a, an energy to play. And so I just, as you said, that, I don't know if that's answering the question, but it is, I, just think, sure. I, I just think of that street. Yeah. And then you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what was the story that your community told itself about itself? Uh, again, just uh, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, resilience, toughness, and, you know, it was a little bit of, um, you know, People from the outside won't appreciate you for being from Liverpool, but know that it's it's got worth and know that it's a powerful thing. Um, Liverpool is a very loyal city to its own and it will fight for each other. And there's a lot of um, famous stories, political stories, football stories that illustrate that. Um, and it was just a little bit about being... Be proud to be from Liverpool. That's what makes you special. Don't worry about being anything else. Just just be proud that you're a Scouser and you're a Liverpoolian. Right. Uh, what rituals or routines reinforced that story in your community? Um, going to the games, uh, mm-hmm. going to Liverpool games, um, home and away, being amongst other Liverpool uh, supporters, being amongst other scouts, and again, um, being proud to be from Liverpool. Didn't matter whether you were going to play Chelsea away, uh, and you're down in London, or you're in Aston Villa in Birmingham. Um, don't hide you're a scouser, don't hide you from Liverpool, don't let anyone look down on you uh, for being that. So when you get off the, the coach bus and you go into the game to support Liverpool, you know, don't don't put your eyes down, look straight ahead, look up, chest out and um, go to the game with pride. What was control in that system? And by control, I, I frame it like, what were the systems that, um, the systems that, showed who was the in-group and who was in the out-group. So who controlled and kind of policed that culture? Uh, the, the uh, I guess the elder statesmen, the older mm-hmm. fellas. So, you know, again, if you if you take from a playing point of view, going in the streets, you weren't always the same age as everyone. So the oldest person took the lead and they, they decided what game you were playing, what the rules were. And basically when the game was over, if they'd lost, you play again. You know, mm-hmm. and you play till right. they win type of thing. When it comes to maybe going to support Liverpool at home and away, uh, the older guys who've been there, who've been doing it for 15, 20 years, who can tell you stories from traveling Europe in the 70s, traveling Europe in the 80s, seeing Champions League finals, going to, you know, big stadiums, and, and you follow their lead. You know, I think it's like naturally, like any culture, you, you uh, gravitate towards people who've been there and done it before. Right. What was power? Uh, power was from a from a playing point of view was talent, mm-hmm. um, talent and toughness. So you were either a good player or you were a hard player. Very mm-hmm. rarely you, did you have both because if you had both, you'd probably go quite far. And right. so if you were a really good player, people listened to you and people wanted to be around you. If you were a really tough player, the fear, um, you know, really uh, equated to power. Um, maybe not the correct power, but it was power nonetheless. Right. Did you have siblings or do you have yes, siblings? Yes, I, I have an older brother. And uh, what did it mean to be a member of your family? 
Um, you know, it's that's an interesting question because I'm married to an American and we talk about the difference in family values and family culture all the time. And I don't mean this in a in a negative way, but I, I think family culture is a lot stronger in the US than it is back in Liverpool. Maybe mm. that's just my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I come here to the US with family gatherings of 50, 60 people there. And it's like, you know, third, fourth cousins, uncles, aunts, all this. Our family gatherings when I was growing up seemed to be much smaller. Um, mm-hmm. But me and my brother is three, four years older than me. Um, our relationship was through football, playing in the back garden with our neighbour almost every night. And again, the, the sibling rivalry of, uh, he was a goalkeeper. Um, and But the, the roles were that he was older than me, so I had to play in goal. <laughs> uh, and, he, uh, you know, that's just how it was. And me being the antagonistic younger brother, maybe I think a bit more talented, but, um, you know, the, the competitive culture was I would always antagonize until we ended up in a fight at the end <laughs> right, of the night. Right. That's just how it went. And, we, yeah. we, you know, if I, if I was beating him, he'd kick me all over the place while we were playing. You know, that's just how it kind of went. And um, that was our relationship all the way through. But it was never, you know, we we had a fight at the end of the night, we still went out the next day and we played the same game. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from your mom? Um, I wish I'd have listened to my mom a lot, a lot sooner than I did. Mm-hmm. I learn a lot from my mom now. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't want to hear it. But mm-hmm. my, my mom has become really successful of late. Not always when I was younger, she was working away. But now she's very successful since, basically since I left. So that probably tells me something. But, um, you know, she left school at 15, got a job and worked her way up. And uh, she does real estate and uh, she's, she's worked the backside off, you know, and she's not. What I've learned now is don't let anyone define your path for you. Create your own path. Mm. And don't be afraid to uh, upset someone along the way. Don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself along the way. Don't be afraid to be out of your comfort zone. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, again, I didn't want to hear any of that. You know, I was very much, whatever you tell me, I'm going to do the opposite. I was, uh, I didn't want some, I didn't want my parents guiding me. I wasn't that type of kid. I wanted to find out on my own. And I was, I was a little bit difficult as a kid, to be honest. Right. But, but now, you know, the, I, I see what my mum's been able to achieve and, uh, you know, it's been all through hard work, dedication, and um, not allowing a door to be closed. It's she'll kick the door in to get what she wants. She's a very typical scouse mother mm-hmm. where she'll go in any room and she'll talk to anyone and she'll she'll make things happen. Right. And what about your father being a policeman? What did you learn from him? Um, you know, I think him and I had a different relationship because of, of football um, being extremely, spending more time together than mm-hmm. maybe me and my mum did. Because he would he would coach me or he'd be at all the games and very supportive in that sense. Um, and again, I think I said it earlier. I, I learned from him a passion for the game and and just be, being obsessed with it. You know, I think I'm obsessed with it because he was. And maybe as a younger kid, you 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 want to be closer to your dad, so you do what he does. And he he played football, he watched football, he coached football, and I was there every step of the way. I was at, when he was coaching men's teams on a Saturday. I'm there on the sideline watching, playing with mm-hmm. my own ball. I'm I'm at every game wanting to be part of that team, you know. Um, and again, as I got older, didn't always listen to him, didn't always take his advice. Um, it becomes a little bit um, of a of a, a friction between you because he's trying to tell you how to play and you don't want to listen to him. 
you know but right. uh, again i think that's where i definitely got my passion for the game okay so i i feel like i have a really good understanding and and you did an absolutely fantastic job explaining what it means to be part of this community and certainly as i said before it's 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 connected directly to the liverpool fc uh the other half can root for everton but your hot your half is uh liverpool yeah no, i'm i'm so fascinated about this um thought about you going into the academy how old were you and and just tell me what was that experience like and well, knowing had, yeah go ahead uh well i had a few different stints there in and out um and again, like I said, I was with a few different clubs, but initially, you know, I'm a, I'm an eight, nine year old, I think. And this was at the time when Liverpool first team and Liverpool under 10s trained at the same facility. So it's all one place. And, you know, that's the dream that, and it, it just happened to be round the corner from my house. So I'd be, I'd seen a lot of it already, but it's got, and, and if again, not good for a, a podcast maybe, but visually it's got big walls around it. Uh, and we, as kids, we used to stand on, uh, on wheelie bins, on trash cans and yep. look over the fence, watching the training and, you know, we're getting chased away all the time. So that, it was like this, this special city behind the walls that you always wanted to be in. And so when I got invited to go, um, I was lucky my, my, uh, I'm trying to think what grade it was at the time. It was either fifth grade or sixth grade, whatever. Um, and in England, each grade has their own team. So you don't have a high school team. You have a 10th grade team, 11th grade team, 12th grade team. So it's a little bit different there. Um, but my fifth grade team, our teacher and our coach was also a Liverpool coach. So uh -huh. he brought he brought us over for a trial. And, you know, it's it's like... You can't even describe it. You know, this is your team that you worship. You're going in in your full kit. You know, Liverpool shirt, shorts and socks, trying to trying to show that you're the biggest Liverpool fan ever. And, you know, you, you just, it's a dream to be in there and, and be a, just looking around and you've heard the stories about the players training there. You've seen the players going in the nice cars and now you're in there. Um, it's a bit surreal, but I, I'm an eight, year old nine year old at the time so um i think a nervousness and and just true excitement is coming over you now did you return to the academy when you got older you said you were in um, and out. yeah i was in and out so i was there and then i was playing for them for a little bit and then was released but then you know they they bring players in all the time to great train and try out so yeah so I, when you played a couple of times when you were in there what what did it feel like to you? What did it feel like inside those walls? What was that culture of Liverpool FC in Liverpool FC? What was that like for you? Well, I think, you know, the, the coaches are smart. They use the power of the history of the club. They mm -hmm. use the power of your support for the club. And listen, not everyone there is a Liverpool fan. Some of them right. are Everton fans. There's guys from Manchester. There's guys from Wales there. Um, you know, not everyone's a Liverpool fan, but they, they use the power of stories, you know. Um, we we train this way or we're doing this exercise and training because you remember that goal that, you know, Steven Gerrard scored against Everton in the FA Cup and, you know, that's what we're looking to replicate. And so they all know that you know that goal, you know that game and the power of stories and visualisation mm -hmm. um, and the carrot of we're, we're doing this so you're going to be like Steven Gerrard, you know, and all of a sudden your, your attention 
span is is much better than it was if you're like, oh, go dribble around that cone. Mm-hmm. Now you're thinking, oh my God, if I do this, I'm going to be like Steven Gerrard. Fascinating. Yeah, the power of story is incredible, uh, which is why it's part of the, the framework I use to understand culture. It's the stories that we tell ourselves. And that brings me back to you. I'm, I'm really fascinated in how you developed the story you told yourself about you. So you mentioned some mental toughness. Where did you, where did that come from and how did you figure that out? Um, when it came to the US, for mm-hmm. sure. You know, because obviously when you move to another place, people ask you why you left. So the big one for me is, you know, obviously being a soccer person, people in the US are like, why would you ever leave there? You know, that's where, that's where soccer's king, all this. And well, there's a variety of reasons you'd ever leave a country, you know, but what honestly, one of the reasons was I wasn't as happy playing, playing soccer there um, Mm. because uh, I wasn't getting the, I I didn't have the confidence again. And I I didn't feel like um, I was a player suited to that country. And so I come to the US and, and like say, I start reinventing myself as, um, uh, I, I, I just can't hold myself, go somewhere, start new. Um, and it may be just for a year, but go and just enjoy it. And don't worry about, you know, people don't know you there, so you can be anyone you want. You know, you can be this confident, uh, funny guy, or you can be this quiet guy, whatever. In Liverpool, I was a bit more of a quiet guy. I came to the US and, all of a sudden, people are intrigued by my accent. People are intrigued <laughs> by the fact that I like Liverpool. People are intrigued by the fact I'm a decent player. And all of a sudden, people want to talk to you a little bit. And, and you've got things that make you different. And I developed confidence through that because people mm-hmm. were interested in me. Whereas in Liverpool, people, to be honest, I was just someone else. No right. one cared. And, and so then I started to look back only in the last five years or so, to be honest, and think, why was I like that in Liverpool? And why am I the person I am now with a, a strong personality, strong character, um, ability to strike a conversation with people, ability to um, clearly uh, express my own thoughts and feelings? Why couldn't I do that before? And, and yeah, there's maturity and there's experience. But honestly, I think it was my surroundings. I was, I was scared. I didn't want to be... Uh, called out or picked on for being different. I didn't want to upset anyone. I just wanted to fit in. That's all I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I moved to the US and I don't fit in anyway because I've got an accent. I'm from a different country and and people like that, you know. But in Liverpool, I almost felt like if I didn't fit in, people wouldn't like me, you know. And so that I I was always questioning myself. And whether any of that's true or not is, is up for debate, but that's how I felt. And so now I look back and I'm like, man, if I just, I might have gone favour as a player or I might have even stayed in England and in Liverpool if I'd have just believed in myself more and not care what people thought. No, have you heard of this concept of psychological safety? No, I haven't. So Amy Evanson from Harvard Business School uh, wrote about psychological safety and it's one of these topics that has just blown up all over sports and business. Um, and it's so simple, it's it's brilliant. And it's the sense that psychological safety is uh, where team members feel safe to take risks and be vulnerable in front of each other. And Google did this massive study and uh, of what makes the best teams. And lo and behold, number one on the list was psychological safety. And when I'm listening to you talk about being in Liverpool, it doesn't sound like you felt safe. You know, as a person in your personality, whether it was being compared to other players, being compared in that environment, 
you know, you didn't feel safe. And when you don't feel safe, you don't have that psychological safety, you start to repress and to hide who you really are. Then you go across the pond to the US and all of a sudden that weight of that culture is lifted. You start to feel safe and guess what? We get to see the real authentic you start to bloom. So this makes complete sense to me from a psychological standpoint. Um, and I'm wondering if, if, if you connect to that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, incredibly accurate. Incredibly accurate, you know, when I think about the player I wanted to be in Liverpool, that I never could be because Mm -hmm. I was always trying to be what everyone else wanted me to be, which I I, I couldn't, you know, I just didn't have the, um, I didn't have those abilities that, that, again, growing up in 90s, early Mm -hmm. 2000s, England, Liverpool, it's, you know, win your headers, win your tackles, be hard as nails, never back down. And that's all great. They're all good qualities, but I was a good, I'm a good passer of the ball. I've got a good touch. I can see a pass, but, you know, no one appreciated that because it's always about what you couldn't do, not what you can do. And, you know, then again, I come out to the US where, um, you know, maybe I guess there's not as much competition from a talent point of view at the time. And, you know, I'm appreciative for what I'm good at. And I'm like, okay, so now I start to express myself more instead of chasing, trying right. to be a different person. Yeah, it, I mean, that's uh, that's probably the most accurate description I've ever heard. Ah, oh, fantastic. Um, so how did you come to the US? What was that process? Uh, so like I say, I was, I was trying to make a playing career. I was getting to the point where, you know, it was looking slimmer and slimmer. Probably could have stuck around at a club or two um, for a small amount of time, but wasn't really gonna you know don't think it was going to be a long-term career and I had my mum in the background saying you know don't you can't chase this forever you've got to start planning ahead school 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 which I wouldn't listen to I wasn't a great student I was chasing football um and so at 18 I I start looking around I don't know what I'm going to do for a job I, I didn't envisage going to university um because not no one in my family had done that. I didn't really know anyone who'd been to university. Um, and to be honest, and I laugh at this now, but I thought to go to university, you had to have straight A's because mm-hmm. I just didn't I just didn't know any better, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I start looking around. I'd always had, we'd been to the US when I was a kid, been to Florida and stuff like that. And I always had a fascination with the place. I always just thought it was this big, massive place that was had so many interesting things, and all I ever saw was swimming pools <laughs> and uh, and nice weather, and that doesn't explain why I'm in Plattsburgh, by the way. Right, right, not um, at all. But you know, it just it always felt amazing. So I, I'd always had an interest in going there. So I started, you know, getting getting on the internet, started looking around, and and I'd actually started a little bit of coaching for the from when I was sixteen. I was working on the weekends with a, a company that did like little Saturday soccer schools. Um, kids would just show up for a couple of hours and you coach them. So I was really getting into that, enjoying it. I'd done a couple of coaching certificates and. Uh, I found a couple of coaching companies that, you know, brought English people over to, to coach. And I ended up working for the New York Red Bulls of MLS mm-hmm. um, with their training programs. And, and basically the structure was come over, we'll give you all the Red Bulls kit, we'll, we'll train you up and we're going to send you to a club that's going to basically hire you and you're going to coach within their club. So I was in Westchester, New York, uh, coaching in a really small town, just coaching young kids. Um, and basically the contract was for nine months and, and with that I, I got to travel the US a little bit on the east coast and I was working in different clubs doing camps in different locations in New York, New Jersey um, 
and I was just having a, a good time. I was, I was enjoying the coaching, enjoying the culture. I was living with a host family who treated me like their own son. Um, and it was a, an amazing experience. Now, with that, I started playing on a Sunday for a local team, which was the pivotal moment in how I ended up being a Plattsburgh and how I ended up staying in the US. So um, the team was made up of a lot of ex-college players and I started playing and people started asking, and you know, what, what are your plans? Are you going to play in college or what? And I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know there was a college system. Um, and so the, the guy who ran the team, he's a high school coach in Westchester. He was like, listen, like, you've got some ability. Why don't you think about going to college? And I said, well, you know, uh, not the best students in the world. It was, I don't really know how that works. So they started helping me. Um, and a couple of coaches started coming around and watching. And I ended up visiting a couple of schools, Division One schools. But then we realized academically I wasn't going to be um, uh, eligible for Division One. Mm-hmm. So then a couple of guys on the team. Well, I'll call my old college coach. We'll see what they say. We had guys who played a, a Herkimer junior college, and then we had one guy who played a Plattsburgh. So he calls Chris Waterbury, who's, who was the Plattsburgh coach and kind of a legendary coach in college soccer, which I didn't know at the time. But mm-hmm. he basically starts recruiting me, um, and I end up signing up to go to Plattsburgh without visiting the place, without knowing where it is. Uh, he sold me on come play college soccer here, come have a, a great time, get a degree. And I was like, this sounds great. So I'll, I kind of took a risk and I said, I'll go, you know. And uh, that's how I ended up coming up to Plattsburgh. Uh, did the sun blind you when you got off the plane in Plattsburgh? <laughs> well, I didn't get off the plane in Plattsburgh. <laughs> I, I got a plane over to, because I, I went home before it. Yeah. I got a plane to New York City and got the train from New York City, which... You know, so now right. with recruiting, I, I do this drive all the time. It's about five and a half hours. The train was nine hours. Oof. And I was sitting there and I was like, what the heck is going on here? And we're stopping in all these little towns. And as we go up and up and up, <laughs> uh, there's like four of us left on this massive Amtrak train. And I get off the train in Plattsburgh. I've got no cell phone. I've got, I don't know what to do. And I don't even know where I am. And it, But it was August, so it was hot. So I thought, oh, this is a nice place. It'll be all right down there. So, um, and somehow Chris Waterbury found me there. Um, and he basically whisked me away and took me to the campus. I have a lot of family in Plattsburgh. So Plattsburgh is near and dear to my heart, but no one can argue that it's a vacation destination for its weather. No, no, definitely no. not in the winter. Um, okay, so you you are in America now and you walk into, you know, that locker room for the first time you're meeting your teammates. What did that feel like? What did that culture of that team feel like to you? So it was, it was really interesting because I had zero understanding of the college soccer system. First of all, Um, I didn't know how long the season lasted. I didn't know any of the rules. I didn't know anything. So I walked into a room and there was 40 of us on day one. And I'd never really been on a team that had more than 18 players. So I walk into this room and there's 40 guys in there and I'm like, wow, what is this two teams? Is this a reserve team? What is it? And it was, it was trials. That's what it was. It was trials. And so I was like, okay, this is interesting. So now I'm starting to understand that two years prior, Plattsburgh had been to the NCAA final four. Um, They were coming off kind of a five to six year period of big success. And so, the culture was strong. We had a lot of Canadian players. 
um, a, a few international players, um, but we had a lot of older guys, and it, the culture was strong uh, in the in the way of this is how we do things, and you know you you need to adapt to how we do things, and you know I wasn't really sure on on how everything was going to work. I was very uh, again, I, I started to go back into my shell a bit there and was very quiet. Luckily, um, again, the accent brings that starts conversation. Yep. Accent start is an icebreaker, and people start to ask you more questions than maybe if I was from Albany. The you know they they know more about or they want to know more about what it's like in Liverpool than they do about what it's like in Albany. Right. So all of a sudden, all the guys, young, old, new, whatever. They they're asking me questions and they're getting to know me. So I assimilated a little bit quicker because of that, because people were in, intrigued by me. I think. Mm-hmm. So what is culture? To me, uh, mm-hmm. culture is is a, what happens every day, especially when no one's instructing you and no one is watching. That is culture. Your daily habits. Okay, so. I want to really dig into this Plattsburgh culture that you experienced as a player. And I'm going to compare it later to uh, what you're doing now as a coach. So what would the symbol of that Plattsburgh culture, that soccer team be? The the symbol I think was winning, you know, winning mm-hmm. was spoke about a lot. Um, you know, the, again, uh, as I said, they were coming off some pretty big success. They, but they graduated from all Americans. And, you know, again, I go back to kind of the stories. It was, well, when so-and-so was here, this is what he did. This is what we did. And there was a lot of storytelling of the past three, four years. Um, mm-hmm. It was a lot of the older guys. When I was a freshman, this is what they told us to do, or this is what we had to do. Um, and so it was a lot of ex- people relaying their experience to you and you being asked to kind of replicate that experience. But again, a lot of it was talked about winning the SUNYAC championship, being in the NCAA tournament. Uh, I think at the time that I walked into a team that hadn't been beaten at home for two years. Um, All of that was kind of spoken about a lot. And so it was kind of, I took that as this is a winning culture and you better learn how to win and you better help us win. And what were the rituals or routines that supported that story of winning? Um, I, I think one of the main things that I wasn't expecting just because it hadn't been my experience in the States was um, the attitude and aggression of people in training. Mm-hmm. I remember the second day of training, I kind of did something a little different in an exercise. And one of the older guys just absolutely blasted me. And I didn't, I, that hadn't happened to me in a couple of years, you know, <laughs> and I, I was kind of taken aback and he just absolutely blasted me. And he's like, we don't play that way here. I think I'd hit a bit of a longer pass when a short one was on. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we don't do that. He's like, play, play into this spot. This is how we play. And I kind of sat there, I was taken aback and I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and that's not so much a ritual, but it was very much a player led culture. Um, I don't know if you've ever met Chris Walsby or know Chris Walsby, but he is the most um, fun-loving, nice guy you'll ever meet. He And he can yell at you now and again, but he's never going to absolutely blister you. Mm-hmm. And, but he empowered his players to do so. And the, the ritual was, if you stepped out of line, whether it was in a playing sense or an off-the-field sense, which I also did, the players took care of you. Yeah, and that's control. I mean, in, in the rituals, you actually also show the control, which was it was a control 
a culture based on uh, players, players controlling each other. So um, my next question is, where did power come from? Um, from the coach, mm-hmm. from the coach, from Chris Waterbury. He, like I say, he empowered certain players. And obviously, you know, American uh, collegiate culture of freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Um, seniors are seen as the ones with power. But I think one of the, Chris Waterbury is someone who, um, you know, he he did a lot of things the players didn't realize he was doing that enabled us and them to be successful. And if you ask them, like, no, I'm doing this, but really it was him allowing them to do it. Um, very much hidden hidden signals, hidden messages, and players taking the uh, taking the bait. And he set a lot of things up that made it look like he was hands off, but he was controlling everything. Um, which and and he's a genius for it. Um, and so I, I think that's where the power came from. He he almost set people up to have power. They just had to take that that setup. They had to accept his assist. And could you give me an example of that? That yeah, setup. You know, yeah. Uh, so, such simple things as um, you know when we were doing an exercise in, in training, and if he didn't like the way it was going, and, and you know, as I got older, and I'll, I'll talk a bit more as I, I became a junior and senior instead of as a newcomer. But he knew I had I had the insight, or he felt I had the soccer brain. He mm-hmm. felt I understood things, and if we were doing an exercise and something wasn't going right in the exercise, he'd stand next to me and kind of he'd say, "What do you think?" You know, why isn't this one working? Or and I'd kind of say a few things and it'd be like, oh, it's like, you know, someone should tell so-and-so that. Mm-hmm. And so I'd just start saying it. I'd start yelling it. And he actually empowered me to, when he would stop exercises, he would kind of like, not, not give me a look or, or a wink, but almost his body language said, jump in and say something. And, and I always felt, and he told me after when I became an assistant coach that that's what he was doing. I felt he was doing that. But he was almost giving me little cues that, yeah, go, you know, if you think we need to play faster, you say it. And it, now it starts coming from the players and, you know, now expectations rise because you don't want to let your teammates down. Right. But too, we go back to psychological safety. He's, he's giving you uh, overt and, um, and maybe not overt signals that you're safe here, that you should go take a risk. And, and you yeah. had to, yeah, you had to take that on. And, and I, I agree with you. I think that's, it's genius. And one of the other things he did, which uh, I think is commonly accepted now, but I don't think people spoke about it then. Um, and people say they do it, but they don't always. And I don't always do it as a coach, but half times before games, whatever it was, he wouldn't come in for the first five minutes. Mm-hmm. He'd let the players be alone for the first five minutes. And you you discuss your problems. Then I'll come in and I'll, I'll guide you on how to fix them. But... You, you know, you, you guys go talk about it for five minutes, then I'll come in instead of just the coach bursting in and saying, we need to do this, 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 and this. And you're just being told. He let the players kind of hash it out themselves. And then he would come in, he'd say a few things, and he'd say, what do you think? And we were, we were empowered to speak. Yeah, there is so much I want to know about this, uh, but I'm definitely going to respect your time uh, and, and move forward. We're going to have to set up a, another, uh, another interview because there's so much I want to know about you on this team. Um, but let's, let's kind of fast forward a little bit and, and you graduate Plattsburgh and yep. you then do what? So it, basically I was, uh, and, and I'm going to go backwards a little bit to what I was just talking about. If you talk to my roommates at the time and my teammates, they would always joke that, you know, 
I coached the team because I was very vocal in training. I was I was very much a coach on the field, but that is not disrespectful to Chris Warsway. That's because he wanted that. He right. empowered me to do that. And so it was always a natural progression that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I did want to continue playing, but again, it was one of those, am I going to make it, let's be real, I might be able to get in on a team, but am I going to stay and coaching's a career? So, you know, Chris, I'd always kind of mentioned, he, he always liked having a second assistant around an ex-player because, you know, might be able to pay them a little less and, you know, they'll work yeah. the backside off for you because they've got a passion for the program. So uh, I'll never forget that. And I've told this, Chris, many times, especially if the transition happened from me taking over. We played in the NCAA tournament at St. Lawrence University. My last game was a college player. We lost to Amherst. Um, uh, in NCAAs. And, and uh, you know, you know how it is when you when yeah. the, the season ends, everyone's emotional. Yep. And I went over to both Chris and Jeff Spear, the long-time assistants, who's now my assistants, and I gave them both a hug. And, and I just said, hey, you know, no matter what, thanks for everything you've done for me. Um, you know, this has kind of been a life-changing experience going to Plattsburgh, and that was because of them. And Chris, Chris was is not a, an emotional guy. He's not a very serious guy, if I'm honest. But probably the most uh, emotional and important thing he ever said to me was, "This isn't the end. This is just the beginning." And oh. you know, I'm, I'm my career's just ended. I'm pretty emotional. I get on the bus and I'm like, "Oh my god, like, what's he even mean?" You know. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and what he meant was, and he explained it to me. He said, "I'm not done helping you." You know you've helped me for four years as a player. Now I'm going to help you. And that's exactly what he did. So I stuck around as an assistant for two years. Um, I was working other jobs, but I was um, probably the most hands-on, outspoken assistant, second assistant that he's ever had. I, and to be frank, I was a pain in the backside because I thought I thought I knew loads. I thought I had all the answers. And I was like, no, we need to be doing this. We need to be doing that. And Chris is just sitting there like, yeah, okay, wait till you've been around the block a little bit and you'll understand why we can't do this and why we can't do that. Um, but what I did do is I, I worked every hour I could for him. And I, I was grinding away on the road. I went on every road trip recruiting. I called every coach. I called every kid. Um, I did everything I could. And we brought in some really, really good classes. Um, and I think I helped on the field too, but I think uh, my biggest impact was on the road. Just, you know, Friday, four o'clock, what Chris just finds out that there's uh, a high school game here. Can you be there? Yeah, I've got nothing else going on. I, I've, I don't care. I'll go. Um and so that's what I did for two years is just was a grinder for him. And, you know, I got involved as much as I could in practice, but I also soaked up as much as I could from him because he's a master recruiter. He's a master communicator. He can go into a room and tell a story to anybody that makes them feel like he's known them for 10 years. And I tried to learn from that. Wow. So you, okay. So two years, you're an assistant, you go to Clarkson. No, uh, no, I, uh, I, I went to Vassar, yes. Yeah. So basically, at, at the very end of my second season as an assistant with Plattsburgh, basically in the November, I went to Vassar College as an assistant. Um, again, a bit of an unknown step. I didn't know anything about Vassar. I, just, I was applying for jobs. I, want, I needed to make more money. I was making nothing with Chris. Yep. Um, and I, and the, the, the main assistant, Jeff Spear, wasn't leaving. Uh, like I said, he's still there now. So I wasn't getting his job. So... Uh, I had to go out and 
kind of, you know, I had to go and get uncomfortable somewhere. So uh, I go to Vasa with a guy called Andy Jennings, who um, I didn't know much about, but uh, what an unbelievable experience I had with him. Um, 18 months with him, and it was life-changing. Absolutely wow. life-changing because, again, I go in there thinking I'm, I'm a bit of hot stuff as a coach, and I found out really quickly I wasn't. Um, he was very hard on me critiqued and questioned everything I did. There was always, no matter what I said, there was always a, well, why? Or how? You, I, I learned to take care of what I said and don't just say things unless you can justify them, explain them, implement them, because he questioned absolutely everything. Um, but he's a genius. Um, you know, I, I've been so lucky through Chris Waterbury, I think from a... Um, a leadership point of view and a recruiting point of view was phenomenal. Then it goes to Andy Jennings, who's one of the best on-field coaches I've ever come across, um, but also someone who is what, probably the deepest thinker uh, when it comes to coaching that, that I've experienced. And I was so uncomfortable for 18 months with him. Like, or, or like I, I was scared to go in the office because I didn't know what way it was going to go, <laughs> but it forced me to, to get better. And, he made me into he made me more diverse as a coach he made me understand people better he made me understand um you know how to push people how to how to be hard on people but still maintain their respect and and that was uh, and and he taught me a lot about recruiting too again i i felt i was a good guy on the road i would go anywhere i'd work the phones i was up all night working phones because at Vassar, we were recruiting west coast kids so i'm calling people at midnight in la and arizona and stuff and uh, again i just worked my backside off for him and and you know tried uh, for for andy with with chris I i had such a good relationship that I don't want to say I didn't, I wasn't bothered about disappointing them, but uh, I was so comfortable with them. With Andy, I was, I was a bit scared. I did not mm-hmm. want to let him down. I just wanted to impress him. And, and he wasn't as fulsome with praise as he always, as I thought he could be. So anytime he praised you, I was like, oh my God, this is all right. I'm, I'm good, you know? But a lot of times it was questioning and pushing me to do more. So I craved his appreciation. I craved his um his praise and and it really pushed me you were very lucky it sounds like with the with the coaches you worked for and again in the interest of time i'm gonna have to skip over your tenure at clarkson and and get to the point where you've you've now uh assumed the the title as head coach at plattsburgh state college you walk into the locker room first day as a coach and you feel what nerves yeah. Huge nerves, you know. Um, at Clarkson, I took over a team that had won like three games in two years. And so I had a blank slate and it's like, you do whatever you want. Just do better. Mm-hmm. But now I'm taking over from Chris Waterbury, 35 years, SUNYAC championships, NCAA appearances, All-Americans, wins. And, you know, for, for want of a better phrase, I'm breaking it. I'm, I'm terrified mm-hmm. because this is the first time I've had real expectation. And and how does that inform how you want to develop this team culture? Do you see it like I have to maintain what Chris did or do you see it like I have to bring my own or what? If I give, the, if I'm going to be totally honest, I, I, 
thought I was trying to bring my own, but mm. I wasn't. I was trying to bring what I thought was expected, uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't my own. It wasn't what I did at Clarkson, which mm. made me successful. And so, uh, to be honest, what I did in the fall, I I threw out the window after the fall and started again in the spring, because I did what I thought I was supposed to do, not necessarily what I wanted to do. And how did you make that discovery? Um, through how hard the fall season was. There was mm -hmm. so many ups and downs, so many speed bumps, and my general unhappiness um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. It was the first time I've been unhappy with myself while coaching. Um, at Clarkson, I loved every single day because I was being myself. And it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. I was being myself. I was confident in what I was doing. I was basically living and dying on my own decisions. And I get to Plattsburgh and, and to be honest, the expectation and a little bit of pressure. And I, I changed. Mm -hmm. I changed. And, uh, you know, I, I absolutely regret it. And I, 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 uh, once the season ended, I said, wow, that, that's in the bin. That's gone. I'm starting new and I'm doing this my way. And I'm, I'm going to be successful or I'm going to fail, but I'm going to do it my way. Did you communicate that to the players? Did they know that this was going on? No. Yeah. No. No. And what what did they what was the biggest difference from their perspective, you think? What did they notice uh come the spring? What what was the the change? Clarity. Mm -hmm. Just just a lot of clarity. I think in the fall um tried everything, you know, went went from different angles but lacked consistency and clarity. You know, what I said on day 1 was not true on on the last day. And that is that's not culture. You know, right. culture culture has to survive through trying times and has to survive the negative times. And it's got to bring you through those times. But I was trying absolutely everything, but I wasn't sticking to anything. And so mm -hmm. um, the difference is that this is the message. You either, you know, embrace this message because this message is here to stay or you don't. And that's fine. You don't have to. But, you know. We're gonna. We're probably gonna move you on, and we're gonna we're gonna bring people in that embody this culture, or at the very least, want to embody the culture. You know, when I do these podcasts, I'm continually amazed that, uh, and I I'm the same. You know, as a as a soccer coach, I don't I didn't necessarily at the time have a background in psychology, um, but I mentioned this psychological safety thing to you in the study that Google did, and uh, there's five there's five traits that they found were. Uh, important to high performing teams. The first one was psychological safety, but what you just said outlined the other four, which is the next one's dependability. So when I say something, I'm going to do it. Then one after that is structure and clarity. After that is meaning. So the work that I do is meaningful to me. And the last is impact. And it's amazing to me that people like yourself intuit these things. Uh, I'm assuming you didn't, you know, you don't have a psychological background, but it, you know, even in, in your own feelings, of how the team was going, you knew that you needed these more of these structures to put it back on the course that you thought was correct. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a psychological background, um, but I do. I read a lot, mm -hmm. um, and you know, you don't. I don't think you have to have a psychological background to know that if you if you say you're going to do something, you got to do it, and you got to mm -hmm. be consistent with it. Um, and to be honest, I I lost sight of that really quickly, but. 
any type of top culture you read about, whether it's the, I'm a big fan of the All Blacks New yep. Zealand rugby team. Yep. Um, you know, even there's a there's a brand new book house about the Barcelona culture um, and and they how they've created their culture. All of it is just about consistency and and backing it up, you know, and and expectations and holding people to that standard and you know things did i'll be honest you know things didn't go the way i wanted them this past four and a lot of it was down to i didn't hold people as accountable as i should have um i was trying to to be honest you're trying to get people on side you're a new coach you're taking over guys with success you're trying to get them on side instead of saying no you've got to get on side with me and and how do you do that tell me the process you use to do that so the process that we started basically as soon as the season ended um, and going into the off season, into the spring season was to let's expand the circle a little bit. Let's bring a few more players into the inner circle. So we selected six players that we wanted to communicate with more often, um, that we felt were guys we could trust, that we felt were guys that could could embody this culture, embrace this culture, and promote the culture that we wanted. And so we started having a lot of discussions with them and, you know, trying to hear what they had to say, but also drip feed, and this is what we want. And I, this might not sound too good, but I almost wanted to set, push them in a direction to answer the way I wanted them to answer. And I started drip feeding the information of, well, a good teammate does this, right? And, and a good team does this. And almost changed their thinking without telling them I wanted to change them. I was, I was dropping a lot of hints on what we thought good people, good teammates did. And now we started saying to them, you, as guys we've selected, you've got to promote this culture. If you don't, then we're, not, we're, we're going to crumble. You are the foundation we're building upon. And so trying to empower players a little bit but also trying to challenge them too, not just telling them, hey, you've got to, you've got to tell people what we want them to do. No, trying to challenge them, we need you to be better because you haven't always embodied the culture we want. But you've, you say you want to do all these things, now it's time to show it. Then we started really holding people accountable, little things like timekeeping, like you know, anything we put in, whether it's this is what you wear for training, we, we became very nitpicky. Mm-hmm. And we started picking on every little detail oh you're a minute late okay just just go home you know we started doing that sort of thing if 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 we had a team meeting or community service or whatever if you're if you're late we, we sent them home because we had a time problem in the fall and you know we we said whether you're a minute or 10 minutes that's you're you're saying that your time's more valuable than the team's and that's not part of our culture. And so we started, to be honest, we just started being stricter. And we started mm-hmm. um, being a lot more controlling, which I've never, I hadn't always been as a coach, but I always placed demands and expectation upon my teams. And I just needed to act upon them even further. And it didn't matter whether you were the best player on the team or the worst player on the team. We held everyone to the same account. And and the guys started to say, yeah, this is, this is what we want. We want this. You You've got to push us. Now, the next stage of the culture is, you know, do we get the teammates to start challenging them on those details? Not just mm-hmm. us. It can't just be us all the time because right. I, don't, I don't believe that to be culture. That's a dictatorship. When we get their teammates start saying, hey, you've got the wrong shorts on or you're late or whatever, that's when we know we're getting somewhere. And they're just small examples. There's a lot of other things, but they're the easiest examples to explain. 
Yeah. So what, what would be the symbol of the culture you're trying to create? The biggest thing we've tried to, to impress upon the guys is team. And mm-hmm. so one of my biggest annoyances from the fall was the individual nature of the squad. Mm-hmm. People were individually motivated and people were, were getting bent out of shape over individual situations as opposed to team situations. And that hurt us. And so the, the symbol is being one. And so we have a horseshoe locker room. And one of my big messages was your job is to make the person to the lefty and the person to the righty a better today. And if we all do that, we're all going to be a better team. And so I, I've never really talked about winning a lot, even though I talk about the winning culture as a player. I, didn't know, I don't talk about winning as a coach. I don't talk about championships. I don't talk about uh, we've got to win this big game because I don't think they define success. I think what you do every day defines success. And yeah. so the bit, what we said in the spring is don't worry about games. Don't worry about wins and losses. Let's be the best team we can be today. And then tomorrow, let's try and be even better than that. And let's right. just try and have incremental improvements. And at the very least, give everything to get better today. And, and that's how we'll improve. And let's make sure that if you're going to have a bad day, you better make sure that your teammate doesn't have a bad day. So, and I think that's your story. And I hear that loud and clear from you, that the story is focused on the process. What about the rituals and routines? What supports that process for you? That's a good question because I don't know if we've put rituals in place. And, and I'm a believer that, um, the, and I've never thought of it as rituals, as you're mm-hmm. saying it, but it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm a believer that the rituals will organically grow from yeah. from good cultures. Like if we tell the guys, let's say, you know, you've got to bring it in and, and say a certain way in a huddle before the game. Uh, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in being, you know, I believe in whatever organically grows happens. And so one of the things we started putting in is our equipment shed is in, is in the tunnel as you walk out to the field. As you walk out, you, you need to, we told the guys, we, we kind of expect you, uh, an expectation of being on this team is you take a look in that shed and you see what we need. We put a list up in the shed, pop your head in, do we have everything we need? And little things like that where it doesn't really benefit you personally, but it benefits the team because we have our equipment house and you've helped and it's not, oh, the freshmen will get it mm-hmm. or losing team gets it. It's, it's not about that. It's, oh, do we need something? I'll help us out here and I'll grab it. So starting to put the process in of, um, what do we need? What can I do to help us? You know, are we all going to help with the equipment or are we going to say freshmen get the pennies and balls, you know, and, and, and force a lot of those things. I want things to organically grow that, that players want to help. They want to go look in the shed and see if we've got all the cones, if we've got all the goals, whatever it is. Um, and I want those rituals to grow from the attitudes that we create. Yeah, I, I'm applauding you. I think that's a tremendous approach. It's really a focus on emergent behavior, right? Set, set the tone and, and give them um, the tools they need and then watch what they create. I think that's fantastic. So the last part of this culture look is I, I really get a good sense of where control comes from. And that comes from you and your coaching staff right now, especially in their early stages. But what is power and where does that come from in the team? Uh, again, a good question that I'm, I'm, 
not a hundred percent sure I know the answer to, but mm. in in my ideal world, one of the things that again another step that we wanted to take to create culture was champion and celebrate people who who do good things. And one of the things we tried to say is every single person has to have a value to the team. Mm. You have to have one area of your life that you are the best at on this team. And that could be you are the best goal scorer on the team. That could be you are the best students on this team. You can be the funniest guy on the team. All of that, whatever it is, you've got to bring a value to our team in some part of your life. And if you don't, if you're not the best at something, we've got to question why you're there. And it could be you're the best battle goalkeeper in the country because you support that number one. You you train your backside off every day, all that type of stuff. And so I think power comes from us championing all the little things, not just saying, wow, this guy scored three goals for us today. How amazing did he do? Well, what about this guy who made sure that there was a break in the game and he made sure all the water bottles were filled and he got the guys, it's hot out. He made sure we had water bottles to go and, and guys were getting a drink and hydrated. And the other guy who warmed up the entire game, even though we didn't ask him to, just in case we needed them. All those types of little things that help us be successful. We, we have to champion those things so that all, every player on our team feels powerful. We don't, I, I don't want to empower just one or two. I want all of our players to feel like they have a, a, a strong part of our culture. They can call someone out or nudge someone towards embracing our culture. And they can, they, they can really be, I guess, celebrated as a strong part of the team, not just a, a leadership group or captains or seniors. So I think power needs to come from everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, really well said. Uh, I have some lightning round questions for you. Do you have time for them? Yeah, yeah, go for it. All right. Uh, this has been absolutely fantastic. and I really appreciate your time. Um, what are you curious about? Everything. Um, I've got a... a, a I'm more curious now than I've ever been. As I've mentioned, I wasn't the best student, but since I've gone out of school, completed the master's degree, uh, I read uh, every morning. So throughout the day, I save articles to, to an app. Every morning, I read them all. Um, and so I'm curious about everything. I've become more curious about the uh, softer skills. I used mm-hmm. to just read about football, but now psychology, um, you know, team culture, like you're saying, technology, all of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm more, more curious than I've ever been. What's something you failed at? A lot. I've failed at a lot of things. I failed being a professional soccer player. I feel I failed uh, in my first season at Plattsburgh. Um, I've failed in a lot of different ways, but um, I've, uh, I, I've not, I'm not shying away from the challenge of, of failing again. Um, I'm not scared to fail again, which is the big thing. What do you wish all coaches knew about culture? That it's not just something you write on a whiteboard. Um, it's it's something that needs to be lived and breathed every day. Um, and in the in the age of social media, you see a lot of things put up that this is our culture, this is that. But culture is is evidenced every single day. Culture are your actions every day. So you can you can make you know all the signs you want to put on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can write it on the whiteboard, but that's not culture. That's just that's just putting it up there it's living and breathing it what do you wish all players knew about culture that they they control it and that 
it's not just something that, that they walk into. They have to contribute to it. And they have to contribute to it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Fill in the blanks. The first step in creating an intentional culture is clarity. The culture we are trying to create at Plattsburgh is well-rounded. Uh, that was a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> we will know that we have created this culture when when everybody is living it every day, every session, and we 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 don't we don't need to address it. And last, is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? And no, it's it's been it's been some good questions. I didn't really know where 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 the questions were going to go, um, but you know, I, I I do think a big part of forming who I am was my Clarkson experience um, as a 25 year old head coach. Um, I was leaning on the job, and again, there was a lot of success and there was a lot of failure in there, and uh, that is uh, definitely a part of my life that and coaching life that formed me and is, is very important to me. If you have the time, I'd love to hear about it. If not, we can uh, schedule another one. Yeah. I mean, pro probably have to schedule another okay. one for that because it's quite in depth, but um, you know, it, it was an intriguing situation I walked into and, and it was, it was a hard place to leave. And to be honest, if it wasn't Plattsburgh, I'm not sure I would have. Well, Chris, this has been absolutely fascinating. I really appreciate your time. I've learned a tremendous amount, um, and I uh, just really thank you. Yeah, no, I think uh, uh, doing something like this, I'm able to articulate a lot of things that maybe I don't say to other people that are in your head. So you may, uh, I'm learning a lot about my thoughts. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing them from my mind down to to speaking them out loud when a lot of these things are, you know, when you're alone, when you're driving on the recruiting trail, these are the things I'm thinking, but I don't always say out loud. So it's been, it's been really rewarding and interesting to actually say them out loud. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening to this episode of the performance rising podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can find all the information about the podcast at performancerising.org. And be sure to check out the Instagram page at performance underscore rising.